Duty and commitment. I feel like I should say it like this. Duty and commitment. (laughs) They're kind of heavy words, you know, big words. And you wonder, I mean, what does duty and commitment, these big, heavy words, have to do with us? Aren't we the place, you know, for people to believe whatever they want, just kind of come and hang out, you know, no rules? I actually think that an ethical society, the kind of community that we create here, the kind of people that we create here, tend to be the folks who are the most committed, who have the kind of commitment, the re-articulation of values and commitments over and over again. I think, in fact, that we are a committed people. And it goes way back why that is. Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture, who founded the movement in 1876, I did not know that that was the year Dr. Nancy was born. That was a neat thing. But Felix Adler actually wrote a book called The Religion of Duty. It would be a bestseller these days, I'm sure. The Religion of Duty. You have to say everything. Let's just do the whole platform in that voice. What do you think? The Religion of Duty. That's how Adler imagined what it was that he was creating in this new movement, in this alternative, as he saw it, to traditional religions, a religion that didn't require a sacred text or a deity or the beliefs that we might once have held. For Adler, duty, the concept of duty, was the response to the suggestions out there that ethical culture was really just a suppression of religion, a a kind of nothing, For him, duty is what made it a religion. It became the heart, he said, of the religious impulse, which is possible. And this one you really have to do in a bit like a Star Wars voice, honestly. You have to do it, as Adler wrote, if one remembers the cosmic significance of the moral law. Let's do it together. It's so fun. Ready? The cosmic significance of the moral law. I love Felix Adler's writing, and I love it because you can do the whole thing in that voice. He meant it so deeply. He held that importance of duty, of moral law, so clearly. Adler wrote in this chapter, in the book, The Religion of Duty, there's a chapter called The Religion of Duty because he meant it that much. He wrote, the deepest fact about the human spirit is that each spirit longs to come out of its isolation and to join itself to the whole world of spirit. And though each of us differs from the rest and though we maintain our differences, yet despite them, we seek to relate ourselves to one another in a higher unity. That's what he meant by the cosmic significance of the moral law. That's what he felt was behind all of the different expressions of religion and philosophy, all the ways that we try to change and live our lives. It was that deepest fact, he said, that despite our differences, we seek to relate ourselves to each other 
in a higher unity. Duty is so important to Felix Adler, the idea of following the moral law that he puts it right at the center of this new movement that he's creating. He invests it with all the significance of a religious tenet. In fact, he he really substitutes it, right, for religious texts and creeds. Duty, he says, the moral law is our core. He wrote, the conception of duty then becomes religion when we remember the cosmic aspect of duty. The cosmic aspect of duty, right? When we say to ourselves every time we perform a moral or immoral act that we are either helping on or thwarting a worldwide tendency, aiding or checking a something vaster than ourselves, which seeks realization in the world. No pressure, though. (laughs) Helping on or thwarting a worldwide tendency. Suddenly, we feel not like the loosey-goosey people, but like a people for whom duty and commitment is core. Some of you know the story of sort of how I first came to West. I was looking for a congregation to serve, and West was looking for someone to serve it. And so I started conversations with a couple different places. It's kind of like online dating, and you have, like, matches and profiles, and then you have phone calls and the whole, whole nine yards. And, um, and I kept coming back to the conversation with the folks here at the Ethical Society, which I would like to say I had never heard of before, Right? I'd never heard of ethical culture. I didn't know really what people were talking about. I was ordained and fellowshipped in a Unitarian Universalist tradition. So I wasn't quite sure. I actually looked up on Wikipedia uh, what ethical culture was. It's a good entry, by the way. Um, but the reason I kept coming back to the conversations with this group from the Washington Ethical Society is that over and over again, I found that the conversations were interesting. They were thoughtful. These people, I remember saying at the time to a friend, these people are really serious about being ethical. They're really serious about what they're trying to do here. These were a people I could tell that were deeply committed to their values. And that has continued to be true. I have seen, I think for many of us, it's because coming to ethical culture, to religious humanism, to progressive religion, is a kind of conversion experience. And you know, they always say that those who convert into a tradition are the most vehement. Well, if you have a whole tradition where most people, I'm looking at Sue Jacobson, who did not convert into this tradition, but was raised in it, and a couple of others. Although I will say, Sue is no slacker on commitment and duty. (laughs) But when you have a whole movement of people who have who have evolved into or have thought their way into, who have converted into this way of thinking, who have been thoughtful about their lives and their beliefs, perhaps changed them since their childhood, perhaps continue to hold on to beliefs and traditions of their childhood, but have thought of a new way to express them. When you have a whole tradition of that, I think you have a whole movement of people with commitment at their core. 
Felix Adler wrote, the obligation imposed by the moral law is an unconditional obligation. The rigor and, on the other hand, the divine sublimity of it are of its very essence. We are a people of duty. You hear it in how seriously we take our values. I hear it in the questions that you bring to me sometimes. You'll call me up or send me an email and say, I'm wrestling with what to do, and I want to do the ethical thing here. I want to do what's right. Far from loosey-goosey, we are a community of deep and profound commitment. You see it even in the words that people wrote in the last couple of weeks as they began to think about the monthly theme of duty and commitment, words that Shirley has put on this beautiful poster here. Intention, you wrote, values, honor, commitment to rationality and compassion, duty to family, work, and all people. Man, Felix Adler had nothing on you guys. (laughs) I saw it this past weekend at the mid-year planning retreat where the board and the staff and then lay leaders from different areas of the congregation came together Friday night and all day Saturday. There was this commitment of time and energy, which is in and of itself a huge thing. But the big takeaway for me was the experience of hearing again the commitment to our values that people hold, a commitment that leads to intense conversation, (laughs) sometimes to disagreement, but to a desire to work through it, to figure out where we are going as a society, to make plans that hold us to our deepest selves. And I see that kind of commitment all the time here on teams, on the board, on different committees that meet that are so earnest and intense about their commitments and how they live them out. You heard it in the story this morning that Marty shared with us so beautifully about Dr. Nancy and the way that she held her commitments in her life, her commitment to family, her commitment to the ethical society, her commitment to her work and to the children that she served. Our children are exploring duty and commitment today, of course, and they're doing it this morning through acts of love and service. Most of our classes this morning are making cards for one of their Sunday school friends who has been in the hospital, making little roses and rose cards to send to her. The thing is, for ethical culture, our duty and commitment isn't to a set of rules or a creed or even a text, although those can be important to us. But at its core, our duty and commitment is to each other to the world around us. It's a living, breathing kind of duty and commitment. Now, I've said it before here. One of the things I often get asked by folks who aren't familiar with ethical culture when they hear about my work is, well, gosh, are they just really ethical and earnest all the time? (laughs) Someone just uh, nodded yes in the back of the congregation, I'd like to say. And it's true. Y'all are pretty earnest and ethical all the time. But what, I wonder, about fun? Where is that? It's here. That's, That's the short answer, too, right? I think you heard it, actually, in Dr. Nancy's story, the challenge that all of us face of competing commitments, right? 
what it means for us to have a commitment to our work, a commitment to social justice, a commitment to our family, perhaps also a commitment to ourselves. Might be nice. Commitment to fun. How do we manage these competing commitments in our lives? As a favorite quote of mine by E.B. White, the author of Charlotte's Web, White wrote, If the world were merely seductive, that would be easy. If it were merely challenging, that would be no problem. But I arise in the morning torn between a desire to improve the world and a desire to enjoy the world. This makes it hard to plan the day. (laughs) I've often heard this quote a little differently, a desire to save the world and to savor it to save the world and to savor it. And I think, I know, I hear from all of you the tension with which we hold this question, to save the world and to savor it. You can see it in the commitments that you wrote. And actually, I love what Shirley has done with this piece, and I hope you'll take a look. She's got the words here, and then it's like a crossword puzzle or a scrabble board trying to fill in the pieces to get them to connect in a way that makes sense. Because I think so often, so often we feel torn between those impulses, torn between the competing commitments in our lives. We'll talk sometimes about what our highest commitment is, what are you most committed to, but how, I wonder, could we pick just one? Could you? There are a couple of ways, I think, to resolve this tension, or at least to live with it, which might be the best that we can do. One is that commitment implies something long-term, and life goes through hills and valleys, as we know. We heard about Dr. Nancy, who tended the lawn in front of the society every Sunday until she didn't, because she needed to go and be with her sister, and then she came back. So we have hills and valleys in our life. Some of what makes a whole life of duty and commitment are the things that we remain committed to, the things that we return to again and again, even after we've had to turn away for a time. In my first year at WES, I did a platform address on balance. And I remember starting that address, so I had, let's see, like a a 10-month-old or an 11-month-old, I think, at the time. And I remember starting that address, and I expected to talk about how to achieve perfect work-life balance in... um, (laughs) in our lives, and uh, that's not how I ended the address. (laughs) Instead, I, I found the metaphor of a seesaw helped me. The idea that our lives are a seesaw, and you know, a seesaw almost never is right there on balance, right there in the middle of the point. The whole point, in fact, of a seesaw is to go up and down, back and forth with the partner on the other end. Life is like that, too, I decided. (laughs) Sometimes we're able to do one thing perfectly and another not so well, and then we go back and forth on our seesaw. And commitments, I think, are the same way. So there's something there about being aware of the seesaw, the way that life takes us back and forth, the way we're able to honor one commitment so fully this week or this month or this year, 
and then not next year because that's not the part of the seesaw that we're on. One of the other challenges, I think, is when is when we think our commitments are completely separate from each other. You know, when we have a commitment to justice, let's say, that we think couldn't possibly have anything to do with our commitment to fun. Separate things. We go on marches and to rallies because they're important to us and it's a serious part of our lives. But actually, so many of our commitments can be stronger and richer when they are combined. You might know the famous quote from Emma Goldman, the anarchist, if there's no dancing, I don't want your revolution. That's how it's quoted sometimes. Well, there's a story from which that quote originated. Here are her words about it. She, she says, at the dances, I, I was one of the most untiring, the dances, I think, I don't know, the anarchist dances that they had, I guess. <laughs> I don't really know what dances. At the dances, I was one of the most untiring and gayest. One evening, she said, a cousin of Sasha, a young boy, took me aside with a grave face as if he were about to announce the death of a dear comrade, he whispered to me that it did not behoove an agitator to dance, certainly not with such reckless abandon anyway. It was undignified for one who was on the way to become a force in the anarchist movement. My frivolity would only hurt the cause. Don't you just, like, love Emma Goldman even more as you hear this story? (laughs) Okay. I grew furious at the impudent interference of the boy. (laughs) Now you love her even more. (laughs) I told him to mind his own business. I was tired of having the cause constantly thrown into my face. I did not believe that a cause which stood for a beautiful ideal for anarchism, for release and freedom from convention and prejudice should demand the denial of life and joy. I insisted that our cause could not expect me to become a nun and that the movement would not be turned into a cloister. If it meant that, I did not want it. I want freedom, the right to self-expression, everybody's right to beautiful, radiant things. Even in spite of the condemnation of my own closest comrades, I would live my beautiful ideal. It enriches that quote, doesn't it? The full story. The idea of Emma Goldman standing up and saying, no, I won't live fully this commitment of mine, this duty I have toward my ideal, without having room for my other commitments in life, without having room for dancing, for joy, for beauty, for wild abandon. What would it look like, I wonder, to live a life where we don't curse our competing commitments, but where we honor them, where we are grateful for them, What would it look like if we could manage to find a way in the seesaw of commitments, in the braiding together of them in our lives? What would it be like to live that life? I think part of what it's like is a, a kind of inherent sadness, a loss. We are not, it turns out, superhuman. It's a bummer, huh? We are only human. We cannot do everything, cannot live each of our commitments perhaps quite as fully as we would like to. 
I mean that in a way that goes beyond the kind of, oh, I can't be in three places at once, I'm only human, which is something that I think and write on a regular basis, or even sort of, well, I meant to eat kale every day this week, but I'm only human. Bummer. <laughs> I mean it more, more deeply, I mean that we are human, and our lives, therefore, are finite. Finite in time and finite in place. Especially, I think, in today's world where we are so connected to each other, where we can learn so much about the world around us and become aware of so many things pulling on our time, on our attention, on our commitment, our sense of duty in the world. Where we can be so aware of how we are bound up in interdependent connection all around the world and usually, as we sit here in America, in a place of privilege and power in that interdependence, right? It is so painful sometimes to realize we cannot save the world after all. We cannot save the world no matter how strong our sense of commitment, our sense of duty to humanity and to the earth. And even our greatest heroes, they didn't save the world either. Nor did they live a life without competing commitments. So what does it look like to honor those commitments, to notice when we have to say no to something or someone that we care about, to really notice what it is we are saying yes to and how that honors a different kind of commitment? I think about this a lot myself, those commitments, especially this past week. It just happens to have been a long week, a lot of pastoral needs, the mid-year planning retreat, and then I leave next week for a week-long training in California. So my family has hardly seen me this weekend, right? And then I get on a super shuttle at, wait for it, 4.50 in the morning tomorrow. (laughs) And, of course, one of my daughters is sick because that's what they do when they know one parent is mostly unavailable. And then the other daughter is needy and, you know. And it is so important for me to remind myself of those few things. I cannot save the world. I can only be part of those who act out of our commitment. And my competing commitments are a seesaw, That in those weeks when I can't be with my family as much as I would like, I'll make up for it later. That the commitments will stay there. That the commitment now to my work and to myself, because my my time next week will include time for self-care and with colleagues, that that's on the upswing, on the up end of the seesaw. I find that those moments save me. When I remember, when I can see the competing commitments, the pulls as connections to all the things I love in the world. Maybe that was E.B. White's problem, that he didn't remember the seesaw or that he thought he was alone on it. torn between the impulse to save the world and savor it. He forgot it wasn't up to him alone to save the world. And Adler, too, with his beautiful and meaningful evolution, elevation of duty in the world. The pressure does get a little intense. You might remember the phrase, when every moral decision is part of helping on or thwarting a worldwide tendency. 
So for goodness sakes, remember the helping part. It's not the whole worldwide tendency itself, not each time. Don't invest in yourself the power for that tendency worldwide. Riding the seesaw, remembering that we do not do it all in one morning, it doesn't mean that we put our commitments aside as though they don't exist for us. But rather that we notice and honor them each as they are, as they come in our lives. What I think I wish most for you, for me too, who as you can tell needs this particular platform address, for all of us who honor the the divided, multi-layered nature of our commitments in life. My wish is that we might notice and love the way that they pull at us and compete with each other. That we might honor each one of them fully, even when we can't be there ourselves, to notice its presence in our life. That when we are fulfilling one of our commitments, that we might find a way to fulfill it as fully as we are able in that moment, to remember that the others will surely be waiting for us when we return. And somehow that we might hold the sadness, the loss, the humanity of realizing that we will never fulfill all of them the way we might wish. Because after all, we cannot be more than human. I think this kind of life calls for mindfulness, for presence in it. It calls for a kind of noticing and being aware of those commitments and gratitude even for the richness of a life with so many pulls on ourselves. There's an invitation there, I think, to be where we are when we are there. There's a West member that often quotes her sister who gave her words that she, that she finds helpful. Start where you are, use what you have, do what you can, it will be enough. She was reminding me of this in a meeting the other day, those words, and we agreed that actually the last part's not quite true. It won't be enough. That's the human part of things, right? That's the frailty and the, the finitude of life. But then it shouldn't be. Because remember, we cannot save the world, as it turns out. We can only stand right where we are, saving and savoring as life's seesaw allows us. And perhaps to feel the pulls of different commitments, of competing commitments, as the strings that connect us to each other, and to know their cosmic significance.